heart of the Christian faith is, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those events changed everything. They literally changed the world, and they continue to change lives by the millions. Now, you and I did not live through those events, of course, but the disciples did. And in one sense, we can only imagine how devastating and perhaps even traumatic those few days were for those who followed Jesus. I mean, think about it. They left everything to devote themselves to following Jesus and the person that they loved and had entrusted their lives to didn't just suddenly die. He was betrayed by one of his inner circle and he was publicly executed for everyone to see. And then a guard was posted at his tomb because they were afraid the disciples would try to steal his body and pretend like he was alive, which, of course, the disciples were in no state to attempt. And yet he did rise, truly rise, came out of the tomb. The women who came on the third day to care for his body came back saying that Jesus was no longer there. And then Jesus himself appeared to his disciples gloriously alive. Now looking back from where we are on those events, uh, we see the, the beauty and the wonder of all that Jesus accomplished, but to be in the middle of it had to be painful, difficult, again, even traumatic. So when Jesus prepares his disciples for all of this, he compares it to childbirth. Or even in the best of circumstances, there is much sorrow and pain and anguish, which eventually give way to life and incredible joy. It's traumatic, but it's beautiful and life-giving. And again, though we didn't live through those events like the disciples did, there is a very real sense in which to follow Jesus now means to endure the same kinds of things, to embrace both the pain and the hardship and the difficulty of following Christ, as well as the blessing and the joy that come from knowing Christ. So let's look together at John 16. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 22, or excuse me, verse um, 16. We already read through this passage of Scripture, so I won't read through it again, but we will work our way through it. And we want to begin by thinking about what Jesus means here in verse 16 when he says, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. Now for several verses, there's some back and forth about this. The disciples are trying to figure out what Jesus means. What what is he talking about when he says, A little while, and you won't see me, and a little while, and you will see me. They don't understand. They're trying to figure it out. Jesus recognizes that they are kind of thinking about this or perhaps even talking about it amongst themselves. And so he goes goes ahead and answers their unasked question. 
But it's not hard for us, looking back, to understand what Jesus was talking about here. And in fact, the further we work through the passage, the clearer it becomes what Jesus means. The first little while that he mentions, when he says, a little while and you will see me no longer, is about his death. He knows, literally, when he says this, less than 24 hours from now, Jesus will have died. It is a very little while that he's talking about when he says, in a little while you won't see me any longer. He's going to die. His body is going to be taken from the cross and taken into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And a stone is going to be rolled in front of that tomb and they won't see him again for a little while. So clearly that first little while is about his death. The second little while, he says, and again a little while, and you will see me. That second little while is about his resurrection. Because he's only going to be in the tomb three days. And then he's going to come out and he's going to appear to his disciples. He's going to allow them to see his resurrected body, to touch his resurrected body, to observe him eating fish even, to prove to them that he has truly bodily risen from the dead. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts chapter 1 that Jesus continued to appear to his disciples over a period of 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom, right? and, and demonstrating to them that he was alive. So a little while... And they won't see him because he's going to die. Then another little while and they will see him because he's going to rise. That's what he's talking about. But they didn't understand at the time. Even though Jesus had already told them that he was going to die and he was going to rise. They couldn't get their minds around that fact until those events had already happened. Then after the fact, they began to understand what he had meant all along. Jesus tells them in verse 20 what this is going to be like for them, these two little whiles that he's talking about, when he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He's talking about the same events there. right? When he says, you're going to experience sorrow. You are going to lament. You are going to be filled with grief. Why? Because Jesus is going to die. Again, the person you have devoted your life to, the person you believe is the Messiah, the Savior, the long-promised King of the Old Testament, uh, prophecies and promises, He's going to be executed. He's going to suffer and die. And you are going to be grieved. But there's a lot of people who are going to be really happy. The world is going to rejoice. The religious leaders in Israel, many if not most of them, they have been trying and trying and trying to get rid of Jesus, to put an end to Jesus, to find an excuse to arrest Jesus, and ultimately to kill Jesus. And finally, they are going to succeed. They're going to feel like they've won. They're going to feel like, A major problem has been solved, and they are going to rejoice while the disciples are mourning and weeping. And yet Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
Now, think about the way that he says that. Because when we experience the death of a loved one, right? Someone we love dies. There is sorrow, grief, lament, just like the disciples experienced when Jesus died, right? Especially when that death is um, unexpected, right? Surprising, seems especially early, right? There's an extra measure. I mean, the disciples, even though they've been warned, they, in a sense, they did not see this coming. They were totally caught off guard, and they were deeply grieved by what happened to Jesus, right? We experience the same kind of thing. And we might say, you know, that after a certain period of grief, that um, we will experience again some measure of joy that in the middle of your grief you might not think is possible for you to ever experience again. You might think, I'm never going to be happy again. I'm never going to experience joy again. I'm so sad. I'm so broken. This is so painful. I, I don't know that I'll ever laugh again, ever have joy again. But it, it, it does come, right? And the, and the, the grief and the sorrow, it, it stays. It, sometimes it comes in waves over weeks or months or even years. But you do laugh again. You do experience joy again. But I, I don't think we would say that our sorrow turns into joy at the death of a loved one. Right? We might also have joy knowing where they've gone, right? Because when a believer, fellow believer dies, we know they've gone to the presence of the Lord. We have joy for them in some sense because of that, even though we are still grieving and sorrowful. Right? But we don't say that sorrow turns into joy. But that's exactly what Jesus says here. That, his sor- that the disciples' sorrow will turn into joy. Why? Because he's not going to stay dead. He is going to rise. And so their sorrow is going to be replaced by joy. And in a sense, though it doesn't happen as quickly for us as it did for the disciples, that will happen for us too. Because there is going to come a day where every tear that has been shed for a believer who has passed away will be turned into joyous celebration as we are raised from the dead to live in the presence of God forever where the Bible says there is no more mourning or crying, or pain. But the fact that he can say that their sorrow will turn into joy is an indication of just how amazing and incredible and powerful and surprising and wonderful these events are. That Jesus changes the world, changes our lives, changes our hopes and expectations through both his death and resurrection. He says in verse 21, here's this comparison to childbirth that I mentioned before. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Nobody's excited about labor pains, right? Nobody's looking forward to that. That's sorrowful, painful. He says there's anguish, right? But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And Jesus says, that's what my death and resurrection is going to be like. It's going to be real anguish, sorrow, hardship. Your your hearts are going to be put into a vice and squeezed. It's going to hurt. 
You are going to mourn. But when I rise, that reversal is going to be so great. It's, like a, it's going to be like a woman holding her child in her arms for the first time. All the pain that it took to get there is in a sense washed away as you are overwhelmed with the joy of a new life coming into the world. And Jesus says that's what the resurrection is going to be like. Because when Jesus rises from the dead, it's not just that this one person that we love has been raised. It's that His resurrection promises the resurrection of everyone who belongs to Him. His resurrection is not only new life for Him, but it is the promise of new life for us. It is like the joy of holding that first child, that first grandchild, where you just feel like the world is a brand new place. The world is... a is, is there's, there's joy, there's light, there's hope where there was darkness and fear and, and all you can see is the light coming from that little life. That's what Jesus is saying His resurrection is going to be like. If you will focus on my resurrection, you will see life. You will have hope. You will have joy. Joy that nobody can take away, He says, verse 22. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Why? Because Jesus is not going to die again. They're not going to have to live through that again. When they see Jesus again on the other side of his death, They are going to experience a joy that will never go away, that can never be stolen because Jesus is never going to die again. He's going to continue to live and reign and love and one day He is going to come back for each of us and take us to dwell with Him in that new creation, those new heavens and new earth where there will be joy and righteousness and peace forever. So if you're not a Christian, this is is what we get so excited about. This is what we want you to know. This is what carries us through times of darkness and sorrow and hardship and grief. That God so loved us that He sent His Son for us to experience the pain and suffering of death in our place, what what our sins deserve, because we've all sinned against God, Jesus experienced that for us. Then He conquered it. He rose. He's alive. And anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, not only has their sins forgiven, but has the hope of life with God forever. The promise of joy forever. Joy that no one can steal, that no one can take away. And all you have to do is turn to Him. All you have to do is trust Him. All you have to do is call upon Him. And He will give that to you. Whoever you are, whatever your story is, whatever your background is, doesn't matter. This is for everyone who will trust in Him. Now, as I said before, this is going to change things for the disciples. One of the things that it changes that Jesus mentions to them here, beginning in verse 23, is it's going to change Um, in a sense, their prayer life. 
It's going to change who they ask for things and how they ask for things and even affect the kinds of things they ask for. In verse 23, he says, In that day, you will ask nothing of me. So after Jesus has died and risen and he's ascended back into heaven, he says, you're not going to ask anything from me. I'm not going to be here for you to ask like I have been. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So in other words, Jesus says, soon, you're not going to be asking of me anymore. You're going to be asking of the Father. I'm going to go into the Father's presence. I'm going to be at the Father's right hand. I'm not going to be here with you anymore. And so you're not going to ask me for anything. You're going to ask Him for things. And you're going to ask Him for things in my name. Now, what what does that mean? What does it mean to ask something in the name of Jesus? Well, when we are baptized in the name of Jesus, what we are doing is we are publicly identifying ourselves with Jesus. We're saying we belong to Him. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He has saved us. He's made us new. Right? And we belong to Him. When we pray in Jesus' name... We are also identifying ourselves with Jesus. We're coming to the Father and we're, sa- we're saying, we are one of the ones that belong to Jesus. We're not coming on our own authority. right? We're not coming in our own name. We don't, we don't presume to think that we have a, a right to come and ask you for anything on our own. But we're coming to you as followers of Jesus. As people who belong to Jesus. As people who have been saved by Jesus. We come in His name and also praying in His name implies that what you're asking for, you think Jesus would also be in favor of. I'm asking this in Jesus' name. I think He would approve of this. Jesus is for the kind of thing that I'm asking for. Jesus healed people all the time. I'm asking you to heal this person. Jesus came to save people. I'm asking you to save this person. Jesus came to love people. Help me to love this person. I'm asking this in the name of Jesus. I believe Jesus would be for this. That's part of what it means to ask for things in Jesus' name. And then Jesus has something significant. He he says these things every once in a while that, um, that I think if we had never heard them before, if we weren't used to uh, some of these earth-shattering statements in the Bible, they would shock us if they were the first time we'd heard them. But we get used to them. But notice what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. The Father Himself loves you. So, when we think about Jesus as our mediator, right? The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus stands between us and the Father. He does not mediate between us and God because God is frowning at us and yelling at us and we are either cowering or shaking our fists and Jesus is saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want you guys to get along, right? That's not the kind of mediating Jesus is doing. Jesus does not have to try to convince the Father to love us and listen to us. He doesn't have to do that. The Father already loves us. The Father is the one who sent Jesus 
for us. When he says, I'm not, I'm not saying, when I say ask in my name, I'm not saying you ask the Father, or you ask me and then I ask the Father because he doesn't want to talk to you. Right? It's kind of like, remember when you were like in grade school and you'd be like, would you go tell so-and-so you know, this because you're, you don't know how they're going to respond and like, you don't want to do it in person because you don't know how they feel about you. you know. Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. You're asking in my name, but I'm not that kind of middleman that needs to intervene because the Father doesn't want you to come to Him. He does. He loves you. Now, in one sense, of course, we know that God loves the whole world. John 3.16 makes that really clear. But here what Jesus is saying is, the Father loves you. Notice this, verse 7. The Father himself, or 27. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. If you have um, a spouse or a child or someone in your life that is just precious to you, right? you love them, you delight in them. If somebody else also thinks they're great, you got something in common, right? Yeah, that, that person, they, they know what's up. Right? That person's smart. They're, they, they see it. They see what I see. That's what Jesus is saying about the Father. If you love Jesus... The Father loves that about you. Because the Father loves Jesus too. And so if you love what the Father loves, guess what? He loves that too. He loves you even before that, but now especially because of that. The Father loves those who love His Son. Now, You might wonder from time to time, as the disciples uh, likely did, why Jesus doesn't just come out and say what he means to say sometimes. Why all the parables? Why all the figures of speech? Right? Jesus says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Oh, good. Right? You might, why not? Why say a little while you'll see me no longer, and then a little while and you will see me? Why not? Why not just say, "Hey guys, Judas is going to come. I'm going to get arrested. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die, but you know, don't worry about it. It'll just be a few days, and then I'll come out of the tomb, and everything's going to be fine." Why not just say that? Right? That's that's not how it works. Right? That's not what he says. But he says, "I am. I am going to say some things." plainly to you without figures of speech. And he begins to do that in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And they say in verse 29, Ah, now you are speaking plainly. And not using figurative speech. Notice how plain that is in verse 28. You almost can't get more plain than this. Jesus says, I came from the Father. Not just I was sent by the Father. That's true of John the Baptist. God sent him to baptize, to preach, repentance, to prepare the way for Jesus. But John didn't come from the Father. I didn't come from the Father. You didn't come from the Father. Jesus came from the Father. Because Jesus is God. Jesus has 
always existed. Now, he, he didn't take on flesh and blood until that moment when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Word, John told, tells us, right? The Son of God, he was there in the beginning with God, and he was God in the beginning. So Jesus is saying, look, I came from the Father. I've come from heaven. It's like Paul says in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born as a man. I came from the Father. I came into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. I'm going back where I came from. Very plain statement that Jesus himself is God. He came from the Father. He's returning to the Father. That's what all this comes down to. And the disciples say, okay, now we get it. Now you're speaking plainly. And now we know, verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Say, okay, you're speaking plainly and we're, we're following you and we believe it. We believe you came from God. And Jesus says, do you? They did believe, but they're Faith was not as strong as they thought it was, right? Verse 31, Jesus says, do you now believe? And then verse 32, he says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. You believe I came from God, but when the soldiers show up, you're all going to run. I mean, Peter, you know, tries to make a stand with his sword, but when Jesus tells him to stop, I don't know. I guess he just doesn't know what to do after that. Right? And they scatter. But Jesus says, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. You guys are all going to leave me, but the Father is never going to leave me. And then he says these powerful and important words in verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what I meant earlier when I said for us who follow Jesus now, though we didn't live through the the trauma and the pain and the hardship of Jesus' death followed by his glorious resurrection, we still endure some of the same kinds of things that uh, those early followers of Jesus endured because we still live in the world. And the world is a place of tribulation, a place of suffering, hardship, pain, sorrow. Especially for those, uh, in one sense, especially for those who follow Christ. Jesus said earlier, right? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. You're going to face opposition. You're going to face persecution. That's just part of it. But, Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm victorious. I have won. Right? I'm going to rise. I am going to ascend. I am going to reign. And I am going to return And so you don't have any reason to fear or despair. Instead, you can be encouraged despite all the opposition you face because I have overcome the world. Now, here's what I want you to think about here at the end. Jesus does not say, be afraid. The world wants to overcome you. But there are a lot of people saying that. 
Perhaps they say that because they don't know Jesus or because they haven't thought about what Jesus said or because they have forgotten what Jesus said. But Jesus does not tell us to be afraid. And it's not because Jesus thinks the world is a rosy place. Jesus knows it's not. Jesus knows and admits and tells his disciples there's going to be hardship, there's going to be tribulation. But Jesus can tell us to be encouraged and to take heart despite all of that because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done. He can say, don't worry about all that, I've got it. Don't worry about all that, I've overcome it. Don't worry about all that, I'm in charge, I'm going to bring that to an end, you're going to be fine. He can say things to his disciples like, they might kill you, but not a hair of your head is going to perish. They they might hate you and persecute you, but you're going to rise and you're going to live forever. So don't worry about it. Take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He can say that because he died, he rose, he reigns, he's at the Father's right hand, and when he returns, all things are going to be made new. Let's pray.